0: Chapter 10 of An American Politician. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A reading by Quentin Manuel. An American Politician by F. Marion Crawford. Chapter 10 Joe had been mistaken in thinking that Ronald would be less well received than herself. There was, of course, the usual amount of gossip concerning him, but as he refrained from eccentricities of dress when asked to dinner and did not bet that he would ride his horse into the smoking room of the Somerset Club, the gossip soon lost ground against the list of his good qualities. Moreover, he was extremely good-looking, and his manner was modesty itself. He admired everything he saw, partly because it was new to him and partly because there was a good deal to admire. For a day or two after the final scene with Joe, he had avoided seeing her. He had not been able to resist the temptation to go back on the same day, and he had spent some hours in considering that human affairs are extremely mutable. But the scenes about him were too new, and very many of the faces he saw were too attractive to allow of his brooding for long over his misfortune. His first impulse had been to go away again on the very evening of his arrival. He had gone to see Joe, arriving during luncheon, in the expectation of seeing her alone again. There would be a scene of solemn farewell, in which he would bid her be happy in her own way, in a tone of semi-paternal benevolence, after which he would give her his blessing, and bid farewell to the pomps and vanities of society. He would naturally retire gloomily from the gay world, and end his miserable existence in the approved Guy Livingston fashion of life, between Cavendish tobacco deep drinking, and high play. Joe would then repent of the ruin she had caused, and that would be a great satisfaction. There was once a little boy in Boston whose hands were very cold as he went to school, but he blew on them savagely, saying, I'm glad of it. It serves my father right for not buying me my gloves. That was Ronald's state of mind. He had led the most sober of lives, and the wildest dissipation he remembered was the Lord Mayor's Supper to the Oxford and Cambridge crews, when he himself had been one of the winners. But surely, for a disappointed lover, there could be no course so proper as a speedy death by dissipation, which would serve Joe right. Therefore, on his return to his hotel, he ordered whiskey in a sepulchral tone of voice. He tasted it and thought it detestable. On reflection, He would put off the commencement of his wild career until the evening after he had seen Joe again. The ravages of drink would not be perceptible so soon, after all. He changed his tie for one of a darker hue, ate sparingly of a beefsteak, and went back to bid Joe a last farewell. Sybil Brandon and Miss Schenectady were elements in the solemn leave, taking which Ronald had not anticipated. Sybil, moreover, made a great effort, for she was anxious to help Joe. As much as possible in her difficulties. She talked to Ronald with a vivacity that was unusual, and Joe herself was astonished at the brilliance of her conversation. She had always thought Sybil very reserved, if not somewhat shy. Perhaps Sybil pitied Ronald a little. He was very quiet in his manner, though after the first few minutes he found himself talking much as usual. True, he often looked at Joe and then was silent. But then again, He looked at Sybil and his tongue was unloosed. He was grateful after a time, and he was also flattered. Besides, he could not help noticing that his new acquaintance was extremely beautiful. His conscience smote him as he realized that he was thinking of her appearance, and he immediately quieted the qualm by saying that it was but natural admiration for an artistic object. Ronald did not know much about artists and that sort of people, but the expression formed itself conveniently in his mind. The consequence was that he accepted an invitation to drive with the two girls after luncheon, and when they left him at his hotel, a proceeding against which he vehemently protested on the score of propriety, he reluctantly acknowledged to himself that he had enjoyed the afternoon very much. "'Come and see us after five o'clock,' said Sybil. "'I will present you to Mrs. Wyndham, 936 Beacon Street,' she added, laughing. "'With great pleasure. Thanks,' said Ronald." "'Good-bye, Ronald, dear,' said Joe pleasantly. "'Good-bye?' he answered in a doubtful tone of voice as he raised his hat, and the two girls drove away. Sybil was apparently in very good spirits. "'Do not be frightened, Joe, dearest,' she said. "'We will manage it very well. He is not hurt in the least.' "'Really? I do not believe he is so very much, you know,' Joe answered. But she was thoughtful and did not speak again for some time. It was on the morning after this that Joe read the article on John's speech and met him by the common. Ronald did not call during the day, and in the evening, Joe went to her party, as she had intended. But neither Sybil nor John Harrington were there. Sybil did not go to parties, and John probably had too much to do. But at supper, Joe chanced to be standing near Mrs. Sam Wyndham. Oh, I so much wanted to see you, Miss Thorne, said the latter. I wanted to tell you how much we like your cousin, Mr. Surbiton. He came today and I have asked him to dinner tomorrow. Yes, said Joe, turning a shade paler. I am so glad you like him. He is a very nice boy. He is perfectly lovely, said Mrs. Sam enthusiastically. And he is so natural, you would not know he was English at all. Really, said Joe, raising her eyebrow a little, but laughing at the same time. Oh, my dear, said Mrs. Wyndham. I always forget you are not one of us. Besides you are, you see. Mrs. Wyndham rarely said a tactless thing, but this evening she was in such good spirits that she said what came uppermost in her thoughts. Joe was not offended; she was only bored. "Will you not come and dine too tomorrow night?" asked Mrs. Wyndham, who was anxious to atone. "Thanks awfully," said Joe, "but I have to dine with the Atchison's." Pocock Vancouver, pale and exquisite as ever, came up to the two ladies. "Can I get you anything, Mrs. Wyndham?" he inquired after a double bow no thank you johnny hannibal is taking care of me answered mrs sam coldly miss thorne what can i get you he asked turning to joe nothing thanks said joe mr bigelow is getting me something she did not look at vancouver as she answered and the angry color began to rise to her temples vancouver who was not used to repulses such as these and was too old a soldier to give up a situation so easily stood a moment playing with his coattails A sudden thought passed through Jo's mind. It struck her that, considering the situation of affairs, it would be unwise to break off her acquaintance with Vancouver at the present time. Her first honest impulse was to cut him and never speak to him again. But it was better to act with more deliberation. In the first place, there might be more to be learnt, which might be of service to John. Secondly, people would talk about it if she cut him, and would invent some story to the effect that he had proposed to marry her or that she had proposed to marry him. It was contrary to her nature to pretend anything she did not feel but it would nevertheless be a mistake to quarrel openly with Vancouver on second thoughts if you would get me a glass of water she said speaking to him he instantly disappeared but even in the moment before he departed to execute her command he had time to express by his look a sense of injury forgiven which did not escape Joe what a hypocrite the man is she thought Vancouver on his part could form no conception of the cause of the coldness the two ladies had shown him. He could not know that Joe had discovered in him the writer of the article. Still, less could he have guessed that Joe had told John, and that John had told Mrs. Sam. He could only suppose that the two had been talking of something, and were annoyed at being interrupted. When he came back with the glass of water, Mr. Bigelow had just brought Joe some salad. The usual struggle began between the two men. Mr. Bonamy Bigelow was a little poet. I ought to thank you, Miss Thorne, instead of you thanking me, said Vancouver in a seductive voice on one side of Joe. Is it not the most crowded supper you ever saw, remarked Mr. Bigelow on the other side. Why, said Joe, eating her salad and looking straight before her. I thought you were going to send me away. I was so glad when you condescended to make use of me, answered Vancouver. Mr. Bigelow also answered Joe's interrogation. Well, he said, I mean... It is thronged with people. There is a decided sound of rivalry by night. Youth and beauty? That sort of thing, said Joe to Bigelow. Then turning to Vancouver, she added, Why should I send you away? I hope there is no reason, he said gravely. In fact, I am sure there is none, except that you would of course always do exactly as you pleased about that and everything else. Yes, indeed, Joe answered, and her lip curled a little proudly. You are quite right about that. But then, you know, I did not send you away. Thanks again, said Vancouver. Do let me get you something more, Miss Thorne, suggested Mr. Bigelow. No? There is any amount of pâtés you always like. Of course. You have heard about Harrington, said Vancouver in a low voice close to Josephine's ear. No, really? She answered. Will you take my plate and the glass? Thanks. Mr. Bonamy Bigelow was obligated to retire. You mean about the senatorship, asked Joe. Yes, the senator died this morning. Harrington will make a fight for it. He has many friends. Among whom you count yourself, doubtless, remarked Joe. Not politically, of course. I take no active part. Yes, I know. Joe knew the remainder of the sentence by heart. Then you will have a glorious opportunity for maintaining an armed neutrality. Oh, if it comes to that, said Vancouver mildly, I would rather see Harrington senator than some of our own men. At all events, he is honest. At all events, Joe repeated, you think perhaps that some man of your own party may be elected who will not turn out to be honest? Well, the thing is possible. You see, politics are such a dirty business. All kinds of men get in. Joe laughed in a way that made Vancouver nervous. He was beginning to know her, and he could tell when some sharp thrust was coming by the way she laughed. Nevertheless, he was fascinated by her. It is not long since you told me that Mr. Harrington's very mild remark about extinguishing bribery and corruption was a piece of gross exaggeration, said Joe. Why do you say politics are dirty work? There is a great difference, answered Vancouver. What difference? Between what? Between saying that the business of politics is not clean and saying that all public officers are liars, like the Cretans? Who is exaggerating now? asked Joe scornfully. Of course it is, I answered Vancouver submissively. If it is not a rude question, did not that dress come from Egypt? Yes, the garment in question was made of a kind of soft white fluted material over a rose-colored silk gown. The raised flutings followed the exquisite line of Joe's figure and had the double merit of accentuating its symmetry and of so leading the eyes as to make her height seem greater than it really was. Cut square at the neck, it showed her dazzling throat at its best advantage and a knot of pink lilies at the waist harmonized delicately with the color of the whole. It is just like you, said Vancouver, to have something different from everybody else. I admire eastern things so much, and one gets so tired of the everlasting round of French dresses." "'I'm glad you like it,' said Joe, indifferently. "'I am so anxious to meet your cousin, Miss Thorne,' said Vancouver, trying a new subject. "'I hear there is to be a dinner for him tomorrow night at Mrs. Sam Wyndham's. But of course I am not asked.' "'Why, of course,' inquired Joe quickly. "'I believe Mrs. Wyndham thinks I dislike Englishmen,' said Vancouver, at random but she is really very much mistaken really yes i should be willing to like any number of englishmen for the sake of being liked by one englishwoman he looked at joe expressively as he spoke really indeed yes do you not believe me oh yes said joe why should i not believe you her voice was calm but that same angry flush that had of late so often shown itself began to rise slowly at her temples Vancouver saw it and thought she was blushing at what he said. "'I trust you will,' said Vancouver. "'I trust that some day you will let me tell you who that Englishwoman is.' It was horrible. He was making love to her. This wretch whom she despised!' She turned her head away to hide that angry look in her eyes. "'Thanks. No, if you do not mind,' said she. "'I do not care to receive confidences. I always forget to forget them.' It was not an order that Pocock Vancouver might make love to her, that she had sent away Bonamy Bigelow, the harmless little poet. She wished him back again, but he was embarked in an enterprise to dispute with Johnny Hannibal, a place near Miss St. Joseph. Mrs. Wyndham had long since disappeared. Will you please take me back to my aunt, said Joe. As they passed from the supper room, they suddenly came upon John Harrington, who was wandering about in an unattached fashion, apparently looking for someone. He bowed and stared a little had seen joe on vancouver's arm but she gave him a look of such earnest entreaty that he turned and followed her at a distance to see what would happen seeing her sit down by her aunt he came up and spoke to her almost thrusting vancouver aside with his broad shoulders vancouver however did not dispute the position but turned on his heels and went away oh i am so glad said joe with a sigh of relief i thought i should never get away from him It is amazing what a difference the common knowledge of a secret will make in the intimacy of two people. I was rather taken aback at seeing you with him, said John. Not that it can make any difference to you, he added quickly, only you seemed so angry at him this morning. But it does, Joe began impulsively. That is, I began by meaning to cut him, and then I thought it would be a mistake to make a scandal. Yes, said John, it would be a great mistake. Besides, I would not for all the world have you take a part in this thing. It would do no good, and it might do harm. I think I have taken a part already," said Joe, somewhat hurt. Yes, I know. I am very grateful. But I hope you will not think any more about it, nor allow it to influence you in any way. But what is the use of friends if they do not take part in one's quarrels?" asked Joe. John looked at her earnestly for a few seconds and saw that she was perfectly sincere. He had grown to like Josephine of late, and he was grateful to her for her friendship. Her manner that morning, when she told him of her discovery, had made a deep impression on him. "'My dear Miss Thorne,' he said earnestly, in a low voice, "'you are too good and kind, and I thank you very heartily for your friendship. "'But I think you were very wise not to cut Vancouver, "'and I hope you will not quarrel with anybody for any matter so trivial.' The color came to Joe's face, but not for anger this time. "'Trivial?' She exclaimed, "'Yes, trivial,' John repeated. "'Remember that it is the policy of that paper to abuse me, "'and that if Vancouver had not written the article, "'the editor could have found someone else easily enough "'who would have done it.' "'But it is such a dastardly thing,' said Joe. "'He always says to everyone that he has the greatest respect for you, "'and then he does a thing like this? "'If I were you, I would kill him. "'I am sure I would.' (laughs) that would not be the way to win an election nowadays said john laughingly oh i would not care about that said joe hotly but i dare say it is very silly of me she added you do not seem to mind it at all it is not worth while to lose one's temper or one's soul for the iniquities of mr pocock vancouver said john the man may do me harm but as i never expected his friendship or help he neither falls nor rises in my estimation on that account Blessed are they who expect nothing. Blessed indeed, said Joe, but one cannot help expecting men who have the reputation of being gentlemen to behave decently. Vancouver has a right to his political opinions and a perfect right to express them in any way he sees fit, said John. Oh, of course, said Joe, impatiently. This is a free country and that sort of thing, but if he means to express political opinions... He should not cry aloud at every tea party in town that he is neutral and takes no active part in politics. I think that writing violent articles in a newspaper is a very active part indeed. And he should not go about saying that he has the highest reverence for a man and then call him a lunatic and a charlatan in print unless he is willing to sign his name to it and take the consequences. Should he? I think it is vile and horrid and abominable and nasty. And I hate him. With the exception of the peroration to that speech, said John, who was very amused, I am afraid I must agree with you. A man ought not to do any of those things. Then why do you defend him? Asked Joe with flashing eyes. Because on general principles, I do not think a man is so much worse than his fellows because he does things they would very likely do in his place. There are things done every day all over the world quite as bad as that, and no one takes much notice of them. Almost every businessman is trying to get the better of some other businessman by fair means or foul. You do not seem to have a very exalted idea of humanity, said Joe. A large part of humanity is sick, said John, and it is as well to be prepared for the worst in any illness. I wish you were not so tremendously calm, you know said Joe, looking thoughtfully into John's face. "'I am afraid it will injure you. Why in the world should it injure me?' asked John, much astonished at the remark. "'I have a presentiment.' She checked herself suddenly. "'I do not like to tell you,' she added. "'I would like to hear what you think, if you will tell me,' said John gravely. "'Well, do not be angry. I have a presentiment that you will not be made Senator. "'Are you angry?' No, indeed, but why? Just for that very reason. You are too calm. You are not enough of a partisan. Everyone is a partisan here. John was silent, and his face was grave and thoughtful. The remark was profound in its way, and showed a far deeper insight into political matters than he imagined Joe possessed. He had long regarded Mrs. Windham as a woman of fine sense and judgment, and had often asked her opinion on important questions. But in all his experience, she had never said anything that seemed to strike so deeply at the root of things as this simple remark of Josephine's. I am afraid you are angry, said Joe, seeing that he was grave and silent. You have set me thinking, Miss Thorne, he answered. You think I may be right, she said. The idea is quite new to me. I think it is perhaps the best definition of the fact that I have ever heard. "'but it is not what ought to be.' "'Of course not,' Joe answered. "'Nothing is just what it ought to be, "'but one has to take things as they are.' "'And make them what they should be,' added John, "'and the look of strong determination came into his face. "'Ah, yes,' said Joe softly. "'Make things what they should be, "'that best thing a man can live for.' "'Perhaps we might go home, Joe,' said Miss Schenectady who had been conversing for a couple of hours with another old lady of literary tastes. Yes, Aunt Zoe, said Joe, rousing herself. I think we might. Shall I see you to-morrow night at Mrs. Wyndham's dinner? asked John as they parted. No, I refused. Good night. As Joe sat by her aunt's side in the deep, dark carriage on the way home, her hands were cold and she trembled from head to foot. And when, at last... She laid her head upon her pillow. There were tears in her eyes and on her cheeks. Is it possible that I can be so heartless? she murmured to herself. End of chapter ten